verses. I'm doing something very unusual. Uh, typically, you know, when I preach, I do an exegetical message. I take a text and we work through it. It's going to be a little bit different this morning. Austin, this is not the way to do it, sir. This is not, this is not a textbook sermon this morning. So uh, anyway, uh, we'll see how it goes. 2 Corinthians 8-9 and then 9-8. This is the Word of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And then chapter 9 and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is the word of God. So uh, even though I've read two verses, there will be uh, a lot of scripture uh, hopefully entwined in this message. And what I want to do is I just want to look at this sermon as a conversation starter. And I've had, had to set aside a lot of important pieces of this conversation, and that selectivity is one of the hardest things we have to do when we're called on to minister. But I hope it will stimulate some conversation. I hope it will stimulate some thinking among yourselves, perhaps in your com community groups and whatnot. But uh, another thing I want to do, I want to mention several sources because of the, the material I'm dealing with. Let me get those out of the way. I'm leaning heavily on F.F. Bruce's commentary, Charles Hodge, John Calvin, Helen Rees' Wealth and Poverty in the Early Church, a, a chapter in Scott McKnight's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. Finally, a book called Times of Trouble, A New Economic Framework for Early Christianity by Roland Boer and Christian Peterson. So, I'm leaning heavily on them, and I think they ought to get credit for this. Now, in my way of thinking as a preacher, there are three really difficult topics to handle, and I'm going to give them to you in ascending order. Third, eternal damnation. Second, election. And the toughest one is money. I mean, you all heard, right? There's an unwritten commandment among pastors. The 11th commandment, thou shalt not talk about money. But then there's the story of the country preacher who always seemed to, to, to work tithing or money into his sermon. So he may have a sermon something like, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now a word about tithing. Or, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Wives, be submitted to your husbands. And now a word about tithing. So we want to avoid those two extremes. And, and that kind of went over like a lead balloon. That was supposed to be, that was supposed to be human. In all seriousness... Uh, finances are a very personal matter and often a sensitive subject, but Scripture has plenty to say about money, wealth, prosperity, and the poor within and without the community of saints to whom we are responsible. But more often than not, the problem isn't money per se. I mean, Scripture tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 41. However, the problem is how properly to deal with an abundance and how those means.
wisely to be used, especially when it comes to benevolence. The best fundraiser I ever knew, and this is about Paul the fundraiser, you'll see. The best fundraiser I ever knew said this, Dr. B. Gray Allison, the problem is never money. It's helping folks with money to know what to do with it. Sadly, most Americans and probably much of the evangelical church today know all too well what to do with it, and it usually isn't thinking about the needs of others first. According to a fairly recent book, Life at Home in the 21st Century, American homes are saturated with possessions. Let me share some tidbits from that book. Tidbit one. The U.S. is the most materially rich society in global history. Let that sink in. At the time of writing, about 2002 to 2005, the U.S. had 3.1% of the children in the world and spent 40% of the money on toys. Cars have been banished from 75% of garages to make way for rejected furniture and cascading bins and boxes of mostly forgotten household goods. At the time of writing, the authors estimate that 90% of the garage storage space in Los Angeles, California, did not have automobiles parked into them. Parked in them. Let me give you a few more. I scraped off the interwebs. First, over the last several years, the size of self-storage space completed in the United States has more than tripled since 2015, so that in the year of 2018, 68 million square feet were built. The total amount of storage space in America today is two billion 300 million square feet for extra stuff. Now, not always. There are legitimate reasons. And this from the Huffington and Puffington Post, as Rush calls it. There are more storage facilities in the United States than McDonald's and Starbucks locations combined. How different are we? In her book, Wealth and Poverty in Early Christianity, as I've already mentioned. Helen Ree makes the case that this isn't a new phenomenon. I'm quoting, Early Christians believed that the Christian attitude toward and use of wealth was a critical identity marker that distinguished Christians from non-Christians in their Greco-Roman context. Regardless of how they theologized riches and poverty, they had to grapple with and respond to the clear call of the social and material responsibilities of the gospel. She continues, in general, the concern of these texts and early Christian leaders, and what she's done is she's gone from the second to the fifth century and collected primary texts that address these issues. Wealth and the wealthy was the key concern, not poverty and the poor. In light of the gospel's apparent preferential option for the poor, wealth and not poverty presented the serious theological and moral problem in the sociology of the early church. 
Those are my preliminary comments. I'm moving on to number two. Now, there, there are a couple of points in this sermon where you're going to have to bear with me. It's good material. I get to preach about once every six months, so I got to cram it all in, right, Ed? So I'm, I'm telling you now, I'm going to read a couple of these points are going to be, you know, you may nod off, but there are a couple of points, hopefully, that will get your attention back. I'm calling this canon context and the early Christian economy. Canon context in the early Christian economy. First, I want to walk you through what the, the canonical scriptures at a very high level have to say about money and wealth. First, in the Torah. The Torah reveals Yahweh's absolute ownership of the earth. He affirms the goodness of the physical creation and the material prosperity as God's blessings to the righteous for their obedience. It's clear as day in there. The Torah also underscores God's special care and protection for the poor, widows, orphans, and strangers within the context of the covenant community. Moving to the wisdom tradition, the writings, the central part, these also affirm wealth as God's blessing, but it relativizes wealth vis-a-vis wisdom. The wisdom tradition further enjoins the rich to do justice, to be generous to the poor, care for them, and it warns them against dishonest gain. The prophets, you remember the message on Amos. The prophets are famous for fiercely denouncing the wealthy and powerful for their idolatry and its byproduct. Namely, there's social and economic injustice, oppression of the poor in particular. And it's helpful to contrast the prophets and their tradition with that of the psalmist's self-identification with the needy. Again, I'm racing you through what the canonical scriptures teach. That brings us to the second temple period, the time of Jesus, the intertestamental period, roughly 500 B.C. to 70 A.D., there was an emerging notion of the pious poor and the wicked rich. More significantly, this was the case after the Babylonian exile. The theme then takes on an end times or eschatological perspective. The pious poor would be rewarded and the wicked rich would be judged. Now, the hallmarks of the New Testament period, and this is important because this is the context of our passage this morning. The followers of Jesus inherited that notion of the pious poor and the wicked rich. It is true. Jesus did associate some with the wealthy. He did associate some with the powerful. He had people helping him in his itinerant ministry. He receives financial support and treatment. Yet he warns that we cannot serve both God and money. He also says... To the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Hyperbole, parabolic, you see the point, however you take it. Jesus says the poor are the recipients of God's kingdom and have the good news preached to them. He said it's nearly impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven or the kingdom of God. He warns of the lure of wealth. He also advises us of storing up treasure in heaven rather than those things on earth where the thief steals and moth and rust corrupt. And in the Gospel of Luke and the book of James, both of these texts pay significant amount of attention 
to show special concern for the poor and those who are oppressed, along with a strong disapproval for the rich. Now, the broader first century context, and this is important as we try to understand and apply what Paul is telling us in this collection for the saints. Although the early Christian groups did not formally identify themselves as poor, in general, they did belong to the lower strata of society called the poor. And that was in varying degrees. And here's the key. There were those who were near subsistence, those who were at subsistence, and those who were below subsistence. This is important. The Roman economy was predominantly a subsistence economy, largely based on agriculture, farming, and livestock, 75 to 80 percent at the time Paul is writing this text. Thus, the economic and cultural ethos at the time was of limited good, not the abundance of good. Any desirable good, whether it be wealth, health, land, honor, friendship, respect, status, power, you name it, all existed in finite quantities. In this worldview, the only practical way to acquire wealth naturally, that is justly or innocently, was either through the inheritance of the money or the production for self-sufficiency through agriculture and crafts. I'm almost done. Therefore, the rich, listen to this, the rich are those getting richer were usually seen in a negative light, even by the moralist and the pagan philosophers. The enormous structural inequalities constituted the very fabric of socio-political stratification and the value of economic behavior of groups. Now let me give you some t- statistics on that hierarchy, and I'm done with this point. That wasn't so bad, was it? Didn't you find that interesting? I thought that stuff's fascinated. That's why I just shamelessly copied it and quoted it. (laughs) Amongst the imperial and aristocratic elites, they made up 1% to 3% of the Greco-Roman world. The middle group, who had a moderate surplus of resources, made up 7% to 15% of the group. The poor... The poor who were either stable or at near subsistence were 22 to 27%. The poor at subsistence were 30 to 40%. And the poor below subsistence was 25 to 28%. Thus, 82 to 92% of the people living at the time of Paul's writing these Corinthian correspondence were at or near the subsistence level, struggling for survival and sustenance, particularly vulnerable to natural disasters and diseases. So, I have made some preliminary remarks, if you're keeping notes. Secondly, I have surveyed the canon's teaching on wealth, tried to highlight the first century's economic context, giving you a bit of a a statistical summary of the socioeconomic situation in the New Testament era, 
And now that brings us to the third major division, and that's the background of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. According to Scott McKnight's book, if we take all the New Testament evidence into consideration, Paul worked many congregations for this offering. Galatia, Macedonia, Philippi, Corinth, there's a whole slew of them. Not just, not, just, not just Achaia, not just Macedonia, which are the ones mentioned here. But these two chapters are the classic passage on how we as Christians are responsible with our, to give with our money. It's the locus classicus if you want to give it a fancy name. There's just not a better place, not a more extended context. And I can hardly improve on F.F. Bruce's synopsis. He writes... In this section, Paul returns after a year, and you can read about that, that uh, his bringing it up in 1 Corinthians 16. Actually, there are four Corinthian letters. There's a severe letter. There are two we have in the canonical. There's a missing letter. So it's, it's kind of complicated. So it's been a year, and so he's going to bring, he's coming back full circle to complete this offering. On the earlier occasions, he gave directions that they are to gather that money on the first day of the week. But in the intervening period, there was some tension, so he had to dial back the money thing, right? But when happier times ensued, he was able to bring it back up. I mean, it's a sensitive subject. Paul's not an idiot. I mean, we know about Paul the pastor, Paul the church planner, Paul the apostle, Paul the rabbi, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the evangelist, Paul the missionary to the Gentiles. But you don't ever think about Paul the fundraiser, do you? But that's what he was doing here. Now, here's the low-pressure part of the sermon title. Listen to this. Paul wanted the Corinthian contribution to be generous, but at the same time, completely voluntary. The whole purpose of this exercise, as Paul conceived it, would be vitiated if at any stage in the game it appeared he was requiring their participation by apostolic authority, authority or anything that smacked of pressure. As a matter of fact, this is a really good place to just give you some out of these chapters of Paul's demeanor. Listen to this. He's not buttonholing them. Listen to how he deals with it. Chapter 8 and verse 8. I say this not as a command. Chapter 8 and verse 10, in this matter I give my judgment. Chapter 8 and verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened. Chapter 9 and verse 5, and, and this is much of the spirit of ensuring they're ready to give. He says, I'm, I'm telling you this in advance so that, so that the offering may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. It's not something that I'm demanding of you. And finally, in chapter 9 and verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. What a tremendous example. Does that seem like I'm pressuring you? I don't mean to. I really don't. And you'll see why in a minute. That brings me to point number four. How are we doing? Are we doing okay? Yes. Okay, all right. You're mighty quiet. <laughs> I guess us Presbyterians, right? We're quiet. Let me summarize the contents of these chapters for you. I mean, 
You know, Brother Barry, how it is. You get on something and it's like, man, if I had two or three more times at this, I could really do it justice. Let me give you an abstract of what this text said. And I'm more certain about this than I'm standing here now. And I, can, I could argue this on linguistic grounds. But here's where the passage turns on. It's not rocket science. Number one, excel in this act of grace, this act of giving. That's the salient point. Number one. The second point it turns on, chapter 8 and verse 11, finish doing it well. That is the act of giving. Point number three, give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men, meaning Titus and the brothers he was sending along with Titus to collect the offering. Prove your love and prove my boasting about your doing this gracious begging to give to these alms to the saints in Jerusalem. Prove me right on this, folks. And finally, this is what I'd call a, a didactic or instructional peak. Uh, some text in the New Testament, all text, have like a story has a peak moment at it. This text has a, a teaching peak, and here it is. Whoever sows, Paul says, he even says, the point is, here's the point. You know, here's a big red, you know, watch this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a hilarious giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then he punctuates this didactic peak with a citation from the Old Testament, which means pay attention to this. Because God, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And Corinthian church, when you come through on this offering of giving alms to the poor saints at Jerusalem, you're being just like God. So, in a nutshell, Paul uses the example of the Macedonian Christians to encourage the Corinthian Christians to follow through and help with this Jerusalem famine he is making sure that the Corinthians have their monetary ducks in a row before he comes to collect the offering, unless, again, he's humiliated. In order to be honorable and accountable to them, and there's a wonderful section here for accountability with funding from 816 to the end of the chapter. It, it's a tremendous example on how to handle money, how to handle fun in an honorable and God-honoring way, and I think these men here do a wonderful job. But along the way, along the way, he is giving some very practical and theological justification for the offering while encouraging the Corinthians to give generously and cheerfully. And that brings me to point number five. I'm calling this interesting observations about the collection in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Well, obviously, if they're interesting to me, they're arbitrary, right? I mean, I, I hope I'm picking out stuff that's important, but, they, but they're interesting to me, and I hope you'll find them interesting. Man, it's early. It's 5 till 11. Look at that. 
Observation number one. And again, this is from Scott McKnight. How Paul describes this offering, it is more than just a collection. Although it is a collection, and he calls it a collection. He calls it numerous times a gracious act, a gift. Probably a dozen times grace is mentioned in these two chapters. In 2 Corinthians 9.5, he calls it a blessing. In 2 Corinthians 9.12, he calls it a liturgy, a worship. In several places, in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, he calls it a service, a ministry. And then in Romans 15, as Austin read for us, he calls it a fellowship, a sharing. So you really can't just look at it as, okay, well, this is a check dropped in the plate. It's way more than that, folks. Theologically, I mean, if I had time to go into the theological underpinnings of these passages, Paul makes, it, this is a theological, spiritual thing we do with our money when we bring it and give or when we help people. It's not just pragmatic. Observation two, I've already mentioned the doctrine of grace. It was grace that caused the Macedonians to give. He calls it an act of grace. The theological point is made of the example of Christ giving himself, giving everything for our benefit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ he talks about. He talks about excelling in the grace of giving as concrete evidence of realizing the grace of God in our own lives. And then he talks about the surpassing grace of God upon the Corinthians. Can I give you a, almost a truism? It's a convertible proposition. Either way you say it, it's true. Grace is giving, and giving is grace. It preaches the gospel. Thirdly, and this is the toughest one. This is the one I struggle with the most, I, and I'm not sure I've gotten it right. The urging for equality. The ESV has fairness, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the NIV, several other translations translate isotes as equality, and I happen to agree with that. I happen to agree that fairness is a little bit too fluffy, although we use fairness in that term. It's about equality. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness in your translation, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. He's saying, look, one of these days the shoe is going to be on the other foot, folks. So while you have an abundance to help these folks, you need to help them. As a matter of fact, they've already blessed you spiritually. So what does this mean? What does this fairness mean? What does it mean to be equal? What does this equality mean? I mean, that smacks of communist Marxism. It's not that. That would be anachronistic. That would be muddling spheres of the church and society at large. We're not going to read some sort of economic Marxism back onto this text. That wouldn't be right. But I tell you what, it's closer to that than it is untrammeled capitalism. You can bet on that. <clears throat> it's not that if Bill, I did say uh, Alice and Bob because that's what we say in technology, but we have a Bob here, so I want to say Bill. 
it's not if Bill has a thousand and Alice has a hundred that Bill should give Alice four hundred and fifty dollars so that each of them has five hundred and fifty. However, that's probably closer to the idea than it is for Bill to have his $1,000 and keep it while Alice lives below subsistence and Bill's over there saying, what's mine is mine, I earned it, I worked hard, I'm a good capitalist and I'm going to keep it. It's not that either. Again, quoting at length Scott McKnight, who's leaning on the Greek scholar Mary Harris, he writes this, and this is pretty good. The aim for Paul of economic redistribution is that Christians with something to give might not impoverish themselves, but that, at a, that, a, that a state of equality might be obtained. I mean, God's not asking me to give more than I can give and then not keep a roof over my head, right? That, that's not, I mean, cost to live. We have to do stuff. The self-lowering, like Jesus of the relatively wealthy is a means of achieving this equality which is rooted in the will of God but realized in responsible human actions. I mean one pastor that was reading McKnight's chapter here said really that's what my church needs not so much on giving but just responsible financial affairs so that they have something to give. Harris qualifies this as seeing equality as central to the collection but he further insists that in the meaning of this word, it involves negatively the equalization of economic burdens and positively the equal supplies of the necessities of life. He concludes, equality and sufficiency, both are components of justice and they are nearly synonymous. A lot to think about. Observation four, the attitude of the Macedonians. Paul notes that they gave during hard times, times of affliction. They gave out of their extreme poverty, but with an abundance of joy, they gave above their means. And get this, they begged Paul for an opportunity to give. How about that, our treasurer? How about that, our deacons? I'll tell you what, these guys will beg for an opportunity to help you. I know firsthand they will do it. Number five. Things unclear to me in, in addition to inequality. Questions to be answered. What is the number for subsistence in our local Seattle context? It's a lot different than Middleton, Tennessee, I can tell you that. Did you know that on the news lately, and I don't believe everything in the news, but it was published, there are people on the east side and working in the Seattle market making $125,000 a year, and it's not enough. Now, I don't know what they're spending their money on, but they're broke. $75,000 to $80,000 in Seattle is poverty, nearly. It's cost a lot to live here. It, 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 I've been here for five years, and it's... It's unbelievable. What is the biblical standard of living for us in this room, which in turn gives us the financial freedom to cultivate and participate in a culture of gracious generosity? There are two hints from this passage. Number one, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, gath whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. 
a citation from the Old Testament. Listen to the echoes of Proverbs 37 to 9. Two things I ask of you, deny not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. One more text. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. There's something in the middle. Sustenance level. I don't know what it looks like. Number is what ena- whatever enables us freely to distribute to the poor. Paul does say, however, let me remind you to the Macedonians that although they gave above their means, they needed to balance that with not wanting the Corinthians to be overly burdened by easing the burden of others. That's kind of Paul's dialectic. There's that tension there. He's not going to give you a number. It's a spiritual thing. But listen to chapter 8 and verse 12. Listen to this. For those of us or those of you who may not, who you want to, but you can't, listen to this as an encouragement to you. For if the readiness is there, if you're willing in your heart, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Praise God for that. I remember an accountant one time telling me when he did my taxes. And I said, man, I'm ashamed. I didn't give 10% this year. He said, Jeff, in your situation, anything you gave was a sacrifice. Well, what about 10% in tithing and all that? That's too much right now. Hodge says this, this does not mean that the disposition is not acceptable when it exceeds the ability to give or leads to extravagant gifts. It may do that, but this is not the idea here. The meaning is simply that the disposition is what God regards, and that disposition will be judged according to the resources at one's command. A small gift may manifest in one case a much greater willingness to give than a large gift in another. And think about the widow's might. Observation six. The outcome of this offering. We don't know. We don't know how it was received. We don't know how much it was. And we don't know the specific needs it met. So at the risk of great (laughs) transparency, and I've talked to individuals who are part of this, and I've gotten permission from my wife, I'm going to fill in the gap, and I'm going to tell you by specific example of what a culture of generosity looks like. They are too numerous to, to enumerate. But I have two pictures on my phone here. One is from June the 21st of 2017. My checking account had $2.19 in it. My savings account had a negative $2.13. And I keep these for a reason. On January the 23rd of 2016, 
I had $11.69 in checking and $4 in savings. I had no retirement. I had no nest egg. I had no stocks, no bond, nothing. That was it, except for a half jar, mason jar of coins Cindy and I had. This was shortly after we came to Seattle, and this has been our, pretty much our plight since we've been here, although things have turned around. Now, that's very private stuff, but I, I told Cindy, I'm not, gonna have to, I'm not having gone through that and not use it to glorify God because here are some of the, just a few of the examples of what this church, this generous church, has done. The very first act of kindness, we were in a community group, and that community group collected a significant amount of money so I could fly home to see my kids for Christmas, whom I hadn't seen in a while. Gifts of furniture and appliances, a cash gift when I was between jobs that they, these people had no idea how much money we needed to bridge the gap. It was generous. Low interest loans, a couple of low interest loans, and, a, and on more than one occasion, the payments back to those people, those checks never hit the bank. Twice I had a brother call me to lunch and hand me an envelope. This was early on after we joined here. And I got home and opened that envelope, and there was just enough money in there to pay our rent, and we did not have it. A dear lady in here paid for a cosmetic treatment for my sweet wife. Just out of the blue. Numerous gift cards, meals, coffee, uh, generous honoraria for preaching. Up until the last time I preached here, several times I preached to you with my front teeth glued in with fix-a-dent and super glue because I could not afford to fix a broken bridge. I, I taught a whole year in front of middle school and high school knowing that any time my front teeth were just going to come out in the classroom. I was going to pop a plosative or I was going to you know, fire away on a fricative and <clears throat> there goes my teeth. But because of the generous benevolence of this church, I have a set of teeth now that stick, man, they're real, and I am so grateful for all of this. I can preach the house of fire, not worry about it, right? Amen. There you go. Thank you. Deacon fund assistance with dental work for our entire family. This was not all cosmetic. In one particular case, it was a medical urgency. Finally, and this is a small thing, but man, I had a brother who was in my home open my refrigerator when we first met to see if we had food in the house. Thank you. And I'm not trying to have sort of a, and I'll talk about this in closing, sort of a patron clientele where I'm puffing you up because you did something for your client. Every single one of these people gave glory to God for everything they did. Brother, thank Jesus. Brother, God provided for this. This is the Lord. And that's the way it ought to be. So as we've seen this morning, this offering entailed way more than just helping the poor, although it was that for sure. And you know how you help the poor? You know how to help those who are below sustenance level? It's called discipleship. These people were 
pressing into my life. They were involved in my life, day checking up. How's it going? What do you need? That's what we have to do. This was an exhibition of grace, an exhibition of love, but it was an expression of faith in God to supply their needs, a matter of obedience. It was an expression of their worship. And what it did is turn that patron client notion of the early New Testament era on its head where the patron would give the client material goods or maybe the aristocrats would put in libraries, anything, anything to enhance their social status, to enhance their own wealth, anything that made them look good. But Paul is not, what Paul is saying here is no, this glorifies God. He says in 8 9, thanks be to God. This act of grace is for the glory of the Lord Himself. For this ministry of service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanks to God. By, this, uh, their, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. And folks, the way that you and I can turn on its head a culture of greed, a culture of untrammeled capitalism to totally come uncoupled from ethics, a culture thinking that financial security is really real, a culture that is materialistic, a culture that is addicted to money-making, addicted to their 401k plans. The way we can turn that culture on its head is to cultivate continuously, as you have, a culture of generosity because that is what Paul the fundraiser was doing with all these churches. It wasn't just about the money. I don't know about you, but I don't want on my epithet, epithet, he worked, he paid his bills, and he died. Do you? I don't want that. So what are we going to do in 2020? How are we going to preach the gospel with this? And I'm, I'm talking to myself here as well. I want to I do more. I want to do more. And we've, thank God, our situation because of you has turned around, and now we're able to share and help some people. And the readiness is way more than the help, but but our heart's in the right place. One of my former students from Clearwater Christian College posted on social media something that maybe it was because I was talking about this. I don't know. He said this. Always help someone because you might be the only person who will. Thank God for our Benevolence Committee Thank God for our deacons. Thank God for our mercy team. Thank God for the generosity of this church. But you know, they say 10% of the people do 90% of the giving. I don't know what anybody gives except what's been given to me. But I hope this will stir your heart and to see the big picture of low pressure but extraordinarily high impact giving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these dear people and their kindness in listening. Thank you for your word and the instruction it gives us. And God, help us to be generous. 
Help us to preach the gospel with acts of grace in monetary ways to lift people who are below the sustenance level, to give a brother or sister a hand who may be struggling. And may you take all the glory and honor for it. In Jesus' name, amen.